Hello, and welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series Podcast, brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Ryan Smith from UVA Health, talking about evaluation of male infertility. Right. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Carissa Chu. I am a urology resident at UCSF. Um, it is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Ryan Smith from the University of Virginia. He's going to be talking to us about the evaluation and management of male infertility. So without further ado, um, Dr. Smith. Great. Thanks so much, Carissa. And um, I just want to say it's a privilege uh, to be with all of you today. And thank you uh, to you individually and your whole departments. Um, as you care for our country during this time. And uh, as Chris has said, we're gonna uh, dive into evaluation and then uh, specifically the non-surgical management of male infertility. Uh, Dr. Sarah Krostek, uh, who used to be with us at UVA, is gonna be talking about uh, surgical management, I think, uh, coming up. Uh, I don't have any relevant disclosures uh, for today's talk. And we're gonna start out with just a brief uh, reproductive physiology review and then into the clinical evaluation, and then as I mentioned, non-surgical treatment for male infertility, and uh, we'll wrap up uh, around 45 minutes. And I also have Dr. Uh, Devon Sharma, who's our infertility fellow, uh, who's joined in with us today. So, uh, so just as kind of a, a background information, uh, this is just a quote that came out a few years ago, and so there's still a lot that we don't understand about reproductive physiology and uh, so take some of this with a grain of salt as their knowledge continues uh, to evolve. But beginning with the embryology, so the SRY gene uh, is on the short arm of the Y chromosome and it's influenced by other genes uh, as noted here. Uh, once sex determination occurs uh, following the SRY, uh, Leydig cells begin to produce testosterone, uh, which leads to development of the internal genitalia uh, you have the conversion to DHT, uh, which results in development of the external genitalia. And then conversely, the Sertoli cells begin producing MIS, malarian inhibiting substance, which prevents the malarian duct uh, from developing into the uterus and fallopian tubes. Uh, it's important to note there are three surges in testosterone. Uh, the first begins neonatally, so around 12 to 18 weeks. Uh, then at about two months uh, and puberty. And so a little bit of anatomy and physiology review for each of you. And most of this stuff is taken from Campbell's, uh, but distilled down for our information today. So normal testicular volumes approximately 15 to 20 cc's or about four and a half to five centimeters in length for the long axis, which has implications, which we'll discuss later. Uh, the vascular supply to the testis involves the testicular artery, the basal, and the cremasteric. And that redundancy is important uh, anytime we're doing surgery on the spermatic cord. Uh, the Leydig cells, uh, as we just mentioned, result in testosterone production. And Sertoli cells are the nurse cells for sperm production. They also contribute to the tight junctions, uh, which result in the blood testis barrier. Um, and our understanding of that is that it's likely immunologically isolating and protecting the developing uh, male gametes. The epididymis itself is comprised of three regions. So you have the caput, corpus, and the caudal portion. Uh, sperm, uh, as they transit the epididymis, are really developing in terms of maturity and acquiring both motility and then ability to bind to and penetrate uh, the egg zone of pellucida. That transit time is variable and it's on the order of two to 12 days. Uh, so the image here is of the vas deferens, uh, which has a very high muscle to lumen ratio. So anyone who's been a part of doing vasectomies or vasectomy reversals, uh, you're well aware of this. It's derived from the mesonephric or Wolfian duct, uh, which uh, additional structures are also derived from, including the seminal vesicles, um, the ejaculatory duct, and the epididymis, uh, aside from the caput. And then, of course, the seminal vesicles uh, also important in terms of seminal fluid production. And when obstructed, they uh, notably be dilated on transrectal ultrasound. We specifically state that over one and a half centimeters is likely pathologic or indicative of obstruction. 
and we'll talk more in detail about that later. And then from there, you have the ejaculatory duct, which empties into the prostatic urethra at the beer montanum, and we see uh, on cystoscopy. So when we talk about uh, mesonephric duct abnormalities or anatomic abnormalities <clears throat> as they pertain to male infertility, you can have unilateral absence of the vas deferens, uh, which is associated with renal agenesis. Uh, you can have congenital absence of the vas deferens, uh, wherein you'll also typically see agenesis or severe atrophy of the seminal vesicles if you're doing a transrectal ultrasound. And then of course, prostatic cysts or utricles, they can result in obstruction or uh, com both complete or partial of the ejaculatory duct. So briefly, uh, touching base on spermatogenesis, uh, in general, uh, 42 to 76 days, and we do know that there's some individual variation. Uh, you'll see that often when we talk to patients about improvements after procedures that uh, it can take three months or longer, and that's primarily based off that length of a sperm cycle. Uh, it's occurring in stages, cycles, and waves to ensure essentially constant sperm production. And there are genes both on the X and the Y chromosome uh, that govern spermatogenesis. And we'll talk about the genetic evaluation a little bit later on. And we know that with advanced paternal age, and there's some debate about when that occurs, but somewhere around age 40, uh, based on some papers, uh, some would argue 50, there are increases in sperm structural abnormalities, uh, autosomal dominant mutations, and then epigenetic changes uh, that can lead to disease in offspring. Some of those structural abnormalities I was referring to, so you can have nonspecific flagellar abnormalities, which will result in uh, changes in motility. Uh, that may be resulting from a varicocele or elevated levels of reactive oxygen species, or perhaps in patients who've had other uh, chemotherapy or gonadotoxin exposure. And then you can have dysplasia of the fibrous sheath, uh, where you have zero motility, and that can be associated uh, with respiratory disease, dextrocardia, and ciliary dyskinesia. Uh, in terms of the semen, so Focusing just on the seminal vesicle contributions, there's a number of different things that occur. So those secretions can promote motility further uh, than that which was gained in the epididymis tran transit. Uh, it stabilizes the sperm DNA packaging, uh, suppresses the immune activity of the female reproductive tract. Uh, it's rich in antioxidants and fructose, uh, which protect and ensure the health and quality of the sperm. So if you have an acidic ejaculate, and we'll talk about this later in the evaluation, that can suggest blockage or absence of the seminal vesicles. So stepping away from uh, anatomy, we're going to talk more uh, a little bit in the physiology and endocrine perspective. Uh, so when we talk about the male hormonal evaluation, uh, you start with the hypothalamus, uh, which results in GnRH secretion, which is uh, seasonal, circadian, and very pulsatile. Uh, it stimulates LH and FSH production, which is occurring at the anterior pituitary. And then abnormalities such as Kalman syndrome, uh, which is where the GnRH neurons fail to migrate, you would uh, get hypogonadotropic hypogonadism. And we'll talk about the management of that in a little bit here. And then, of course, the pituitary is highly involved in the reproductive axis. Uh, LH stimulating lytic cells to produce testosterone. FSH uh, impacting the Sertoli cells and resulting in sperm production. Uh, the role of prolactin is a little bit less clear, but it may increase the concentration of LH receptors, resulting in higher levels of intratesticular testosterone. And we'll talk about what elevated prolactin levels can do to male infertility uh, in just a bit. And then, of course, that feedback loop is highly important. <clears throat> so, testosterone provides negative feedback at the hypothalamus um, and the anterior pituitary, but more so at the hypothalamus. Uh, testosterone gets converted to DHT or dihydrotestosterone via 5-alpha reductase. And testosterone gets converted to estrogen via aromatase, in particular in fatty tissue, which has implications for men with obesity. And then you have actin and inhibin, uh, which affect FSH secretion. And uh, notably, FSH secretion is relatively independent of GnRH stimulation. So testosterone itself, 
as you all know, uh, exists in multiple forms. So it can be tightly bound to sex hormone binding globulin or uh, loosely bound to other proteins such as albumin. And then the free portion or around 2% or so is around to do the work. Uh, in general, we expect peaks in testosterone in the morning with a subsequent trough in the afternoon for men. And per the AUA guidelines, uh, which is the only guideline which really has drawn a line in the sand, a testosterone below 300 nanograms per deciliter is considered low. Uh, importantly for us to know is that serum estimates of testosterone obviously don't reflect uh, the intratesticular levels, uh, and those are typically much higher. Uh, and sex hormone binding globulin can impact uh, what we see in terms of low testosterone. So uh, disease states such as obesity, uh, hypothyroidism and diabetes can lower SHBG. And then conditions such as aging, cirrhosis, and HIV will actually raise sex hormone binding globulin. So if you're checking free testosterone, that will be reflected in your results if patients do have some of those uh, diseases. So that's all the physiology background will do. Um, many of you may have breathed a sigh of relief now. We're going to go into the clinical evaluation of male infertility. So importantly, just as background, uh, there's been a significant rise in the use of assisted reproductive technologies, both within the United States, wherein it's just under 10%, but you'll see other countries are even upwards of 10%. Uh, it's estimated, and this is almost a decade old now, but uh, just under 50 million couples worldwide struggle with infertility. And the United Nations predicts a uh, global fertility decline over the coming decades. And US birth rates, as I mentioned, uh, have been going down. Uh, 2018 was the last reported year, and that was the fourth year of decline since 2014. We're at our current lowest levels in three decades and have fallen below the fertility rate of what's needed for the population to replace itself. And there are likely multifactorial reasons for that. But in general, if you look just at the United States, it's around one in eight couples uh, who struggle with infertility just over a million women per year who make a new office visit for an evaluation, but only about 20% of the male partners uh, actually undergo an evaluation. So we're missing a lot of men in terms of uh, their evaluation. And that's important because male infertility is a reflection really of overall health and a measure of overall health. And we know that about 50% of the time when a couple struggles with infertility, uh, the man's involved around 30% of the time uh, it's the main one. And here are just some common uh, uh, items that'll be detected at the time of an infertility visit. Um, and some of the limitations of us as uh, male reproductive uh, physicians in terms of when we are seeing patients. So one is you'll see the large number of idiopathic cases. And some have suggested this is upwards of 40%. Um, of course, varicocele being uh, the other most common diagnosis. Uh, we know that a semen analysis is a limited measure uh, in terms of being able to assess a man's fertility. And uh, many urologists don't have a fertility specialist at their program or receive little training in it. Um, we've often taken a backseat to uh, perceptions that IVF uh, is a safe cure-all for male fertility. And many of our reproductive endocrinology colleagues are really the gatekeepers in terms of referrals or getting patients to see us versus just pursuing assisted reproduction. So the history is really crucial uh, when we talk about male infertility. And so uh, some of the items uh, you wanna think about in terms of when to actually uh, undergo a fertility evaluation is that uh, one is obviously if there are any sort of risk factors, the patient has a known history of a varicocele, uh, guidelines suggest if the female partner is over 35 years old, that a couple should have an earlier evaluation. And we know in general, if couples have tried for approximately one year, uh, that if they have not conceived, that that would be a good time for an evaluation as well. 92% uh, will conceive after about two years. Uh, but notably, um, only a minority of couples who haven't conceived by six months uh, will do so in the remaining six. And so it's reasonable to initiate an evaluation even as early as six months. So some of the items you'll want to ask about in your history are, of course, include any prior conceptions, contraception use. Uh, again, partner age is very important. And, and 
the female history in terms of any female factor infertility concerns, the frequency and timing of intercourse, uh, any underlying family history of infertility, uh, sexual function, uh, obviously very important. So asking about a man's libido, erectile function, any difficulty with ejaculation, uh, whether or not the couple is using lubricants, which may or may not be spermicidal. And then you want to ask about past medical history. So that may include prior chemotherapy exposures or radiation exposures, uh, of course, reproductive tract infections, uh, testicular torsion, trauma, uh, and then undescended testicles, a hernia that might result in obstruction, obviously prior vasectomy or retroperitoneal lymph node dissection that might result in uh, retrograde ejaculation. And then a number of different medications can impact fertility. And unfortunately, our understanding of this is somewhat limited as many drugs are not uh, tested in terms of the impact they may have on sperm. Uh, and if they are tested, oftentimes it's in an animal model. We of course know that uh, testosterone replacement therapy uh, negatively impacts sperm production and can result in azospermia over time. Um, opioids can affect the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis. A number of antibiotics uh, can have negative implications for sperm production or quality and immunosuppressants additionally. Uh, it's important to ask about uh, social history. So smoking, uh, marijuana use, and heavy alcohol use, in particular uh, binging, and illicit drug use can all have implications for fertility. And then also important to ask about environmental or occupational exposures. So um, people may have pesticide or herbicide uh, exposures or, or known exposures to other endocrine disrupting compounds or radiation. And of course, thermal uh, injuries, such as things like um, uh, hot tub use, and then laptops and cell phones for EMF radiation have been shown to uh, negatively impact sperm production as well. So key components of the physical exam now, moving on from your history. So BMI uh, is important for its implications. Um, obesity uh, negatively impacts both uh, from a hormonal perspective, but also a number of different uh, sperm uh, parameters. Uh, so habitus, important to note, and we'll talk just briefly later that many men with Feinfelter syndrome uh, don't exhibit gynecomastia, tall stature, or those uh, textbook uh, phenotypic definitions. Uh, you want to note secondary sex characteristics. Uh, during your scrotal evaluation, evaluate testicular size, uh, consistency, uh, and then symmetry between the testes. For instance, a patient with varicocele you may see size discrepancy between uh, the right and the left testes. Uh, when you're examining the epididymis, you want to note, uh, does it appear to be engorged, which might suggest obstruction uh, for a good baseline evaluation of this. If you're examining patients who've had a vasectomy, generally the epididymis is more prominent. And then of course, the spermatic cord, uh, you're wanting to evaluate uh, the presence of a varicocele, uh, which we'll uh, dive into a little more detail later and establish whether or not the vas deferens are present um, on both sides. Uh, examining the penis, you might look for uh, hypospadias or Peyronie's plaques. Uh, the prostate exam is of relatively limited utility. Uh, in general, when we talk about it, we're talking about whether or not you can palpate the seminal vesicles or a prostatic cyst, although those are both very challenging and better delineated with imaging. Uh, this uh, standard testing, so the semen analysis, which I mentioned earlier is the cornerstone of the male fertility evaluation, but it's problematic. I've listed the kind of normal reference ranges here for you, and these are taken from the World Health Organization, uh, specifically in 2010, and they are really just the fifth percentile values uh, from population-based studies. Uh, the recommendation is for a semen analysis uh, to be obtained after at least one to two days of abstinence. Uh, we know that there's a large amount of variation within individuals in terms of the semen analysis, which is why we generally recommend two for comparison purposes. And in general, you wanna separate those by two to three weeks if possible. And importantly for you to understand, obviously a semen analysis does not define fertile or infertile. So you can have men uh, who fall below some of these reference values that will ultimately conceive if you follow them over time. So we'll go through and systematically uh, talk about uh, when semen parameters are abnormal, and what do you do about it? 
So uh, when we talk about volume, uh, in general, the reference range is one to one and a half cc's. So a low volume ejaculate would be hypospermia, absent ejaculate, aspermia. Uh, can result from obstruction. So ejaculatory duct obstruction, which we mentioned earlier. You can have hypoplasia of the prostate or seminal vesicles. Uh, that, uh, the seminal vesicles can be atrophic or uh, in the setting of CBAVD as well. Uh, so bilateral absence of the vas deferens. Uh, or you can have ejaculatory dysfunction. So patient who's had a retroperitoneal lymph node dissection or a patient with long-standing uncontrolled diabetes, uh, prior neurologic injury or some drugs, as you all know, uh, some of our BPH medications can do it. Uh, so if you identify low ejaculate volume on a semen analysis, uh, part of that evaluation, so um, an endocrine evaluation is important. So you can see uh, low ejaculate volume in the setting of hypogonadism. Uh, from there, uh, you would do a post-ejaculatory urinalysis, and this is generally done by having the patient void, uh, they empty their bladder, then collect uh, the semen sample, and uh, then followed by another urine sample. So you wanna have very little urine to look through when you're doing that uh, urinalysis uh, to look for sperm. And there are varying definitions of retrograde ejaculation, but essentially a good uh, standard is if the sperm in the urine uh, nears or exceeds that in the age grade specimen, that would be diagnostic. If your post-ejaculatory urinalysis uh, was negative and you've ruled that out, then you continue to be concerned for obstruction and a transrectal ultrasound is valuable uh, in that setting. And we'll talk a little bit more about that coming up. So moving on to the next parameter, so uh, density or concentration. So that fifth percentile is 15 million per milliliter. Uh, we deem uh, when, this, uh, when uh, sperm concentration falls below this, that's oligospermia, so a low sperm count. And uh, that's where two of our other indications for further testing come up. So one is if it falls below 5 million per milliliter, that's an indication for genetic testing, uh, specifically a karyotype and a Y chromosome microdeletion. If we see the sperm density fall below 10 million per milliliter, uh, that would be an indication to uh, further pursue an endocrine evaluation for that patient. And if, of course, azoospermia, so no sperm in the ejaculate, uh, that's gonna prompt both an endocrine evaluation and a genetic evaluation and it's important to remember this is defined uh, after a uh, semen sample is centrifuged uh, down and no sperm are still seen. So if you just do a standard semen analysis and it's not centrifuged, uh, you can miss uh, even very low numbers of sperm, uh, which uh, if identified could be used for IVF and the patient would not need a surgical procedure. And this is just taken from Campbell's. We'll talk a little bit more about this, but this is an algorithm uh, developed by Craig Niederberger uh, which just shows in the setting of azoospermia, how do we evaluate this? So once you've established that both vasa are present, uh, if the ejaculate volume's normal, then you can look uh, at total long axis of the testis and the FSH, and that can help guide you in terms of predicting, does this patient have an obstructive cause uh, to azoospermia or a non-obstructive cause? We talked a little bit more about it. Uh, we talked uh, just moments ago about ejaculatory issues. So moving on to motility. So in terms of uh, motility concerns, uh, we term this asthenospermia. Uh, if motility is at uh, 0%, which we talked about a little bit earlier, uh, you can perform vitality testing of sperm, and that's to assess whether the sperm are indeed uh, just dead, uh, or if they have abnormalities involving uh, the tail or the fibrous sheath, as we talked about previously. Uh, not all labs routinely do this, um, but important to you to know that it is available. And uh, in general, if the motility is less than 10%, uh, as well as vitality, one of the things you may look for is uh, something like Cartagener syndrome or primary ciliary dyskinesia. These are highly uncommon. Uh, to identify it, really, you would need to do uh, electron microscopy to look for ultra-structural defects in terms of uh, within the sperm level. Obviously, you can evaluate for these syndromes uh, via evaluating other uh, systems, but uh, if we're just talking about from the reproductive side, uh, this is very uncommon again. And uh, morphology. So arguably uh, the most controversial and potentially least useful parameter on a semen analysis. So 
uh, when it uh, morphology is low and you'll see the cutoff is 4% and that's based off strict morphology assessments. Uh, that changed back in 2010, but it's just what it sounds like, which is very stringent criteria for what constitutes a normal shaped sperm. Uh, the clinical predictive value of morphology is very controversial. Uh, men who just have an abnormal uh, morphology assessment generally are found to have uh, adequate reproductive potential. And morphology, importantly, uh, doesn't appear to predict natural conception, IUI, or IVF outcomes. Uh, so it's important, you see a patient with just abnormal sperm shape, uh, it may not be uh, the end-all be-all. Uh, severe cases are what, uh, where the acrosome fails to form, so globosospermia. Uh, there's a picture there for you. Uh, the treatment in that setting is IVF ICSI, and again, uh, very uncommon finding. So leukocytospermia, so this is another uh, relatively controversial area in terms of talking about abnormal semen analyses. Uh, we define this as when there's over a million uh, white blood cells per milliliter uh, in a semen sample. And uh, this is assessed uh, generally with staining. So if you're just doing light microscopy or phase microscopy and not staining, uh, you can get faked out by immature germ cells, which are gonna be present uh, as they can look very much the same as white blood cells. So you need to have a staining assessment of this. Uh, we know that semen cultures are really not helpful. Uh, there are a number of commensal organisms. Of course, semen uh, samples are generally collected through masturbation. So in general, there's skin flora present. Uh, if a patient doesn't have symptoms, unlikely to represent an infection. And we know that there are supposed to be white cells in the semen. Um, to some degree, it's physiologic and even beneficial to sperm development. Uh, the reason why it's postulated to be detrimental uh, in some cases is that it uh, can increase reactive oxygen species, which has a number of uh, negative downstream effects on sperm quality and development. Uh, the treatment, again, uh, is not standardized a little bit all over the map. So uh, some people have traditionally used anti-inflammatories. Uh, there was a study that came out uh, not too long ago uh, that argued that uh, even ibuprofen itself may have uh, short-term impacts on testicular physiology. Um, Parviz Kabusi did a nice follow-up study that showed neg no negative impacts in terms of sperm quality after uh, NSAID use. But again, uh, there's no standard of care, uh, not great evidence that it's helpful in terms of aiding in conception. Uh, traditionally, a lot of people have thrown antibiotics at patients with leukocytospermia, really uh, mixed evidence in terms of whether it has any sort of benefit. And as we mentioned before, many antibiotics can actually have negative impacts on sperm. Supplements we'll talk about later. Um, majority of the time, I would say at present, uh, people will just observe leukocytospermia, especially low levels of it. And again, there's controversy about whether or not to treat a patient who demonstrates leukocytospermia prior to assisted reproductive uh, techniques in terms of whether that actually ultimately uh, impacts outcomes. So there are a number of different adjunct tests, many of which are continuing to evolve. So anti-sperm antibody is a little bit um, uh, older test, um, which is rarely done uh, today, but at present, the time indications maybe to do this would be if you see low motility and a high amount of agglutination of sperm in a sample. This may be a patient who's had a reproductive tract surgery or trauma. Again, rarely uh, done, at least not routinely. There's a lot of controversy surrounding the utility of DNA fragmentation testing. Uh, so this essentially pertains to the packaging of the DNA within the sperm and whether it's really tightly bound or loosely bound, uh, which may uh, impact sperm function, fertilization, implantation, pregnancy. There are multiple different assays available for this, a lot of different reference ranges for this. So there are some indications where we might uh, pursue DNA fragmentation testing, but again, this isn't a routine test, just important for you to know it exists. Uh, fish testing, so we can assess for aneuploidy in sperm. Uh, indications where we might pursue this are a patient with recurrent pregnancy loss, um, or recurrent implantation failure, recurrent IVF failure. Uh, the unfortunate thing is you can test one sample and we know that patient provides another sample down the road, they may be completely different. And once you've tested the sperm, you can't use them for IVF, so you can't use it to select uh, for um, good sperm. 
And then reactive oxygen species. So we mentioned earlier that uh, excess leukocytes, uh, sometimes varicocele, things like that can elevate reactive oxygen species, which may damage sperm quality. Again, this isn't necessarily a standard uh, of care, but just important for you to know it exists. So transitioning away from the semen analysis, we'll talk a little bit about the endocrine evaluation. Um, so we mentioned a few indications uh, to pursue this uh, in patients, and there are some settings and uh, some studies that argue we should be doing it in all patients. Uh, but specific indications would be abnormal semen parameters. So we talked about sperm concentration being one of those, or low ejaculate volume. Of course, if a patient reports to you that they've noticed diminished libido or having difficulty with sexual function, that may prompt you to test this. And then, um, or if they have clinical findings that suggest uh, this would be warranted. And in general, that uh, means getting a testosterone and an FSH. Uh, Campbell's and some others, as I mentioned, have argued that maybe we should be doing it uh, more widespread and perhaps expanding the regimen to include an LH and an estradiol. Uh, why they argue that is that even a, a large portion of men or even a third of them who have a normal sperm concentration may have an endocrinopathy. Uh, it's important to get a morning testosterone level uh, per guidelines, but also in general, these are young men, and we know that those fluctuations in terms of morning to afternoon are all more pronounced uh, in that setting. And we talked about uh, that algorithm that I mentioned uh, Dr. Niederberger had developed uh, when looking at FSH and testicular long axis and how that can help you in terms of patient with azospermia, but it also helps you to see um, if a patient has a really elevated FSH, this may indicate testicular failure. Estradiol, arguably important in looking at the testosterone to estrogen ratio, uh, because if uh, some studies have suggested if this is uh, below 10 to 1, that may indicate reproductive dysfunction. And prolactin, which we touched on earlier, uh, we know that elevated levels, such uh, as with a prolactinoma, uh, this will result in abnormalities in the HPG axis, uh, may need to uh, prompt a pituitary MRI. So just for your own reference, so I touched just briefly there on testicular failure in that setting that one example may be Klinefelter syndrome. So you have a low testosterone, elevated FSH and LH, um, hypogonadic hypogonadism, uh, which was much earlier in our talk. So Kalman syndrome, those patients have low LH and FSH and a low testosterone. If you have elevated prolactin, generally sees uh, suppression of testosterone and FSH and LH in that setting. And then there are a number of androgen insensitivity syndromes where testosterone may actually be high, LH is high, and FSH is variable. So moving on to genetics, uh, again, our promptings to uh, pursue this would uh, include a, a patient who has non-obstructive azospermia, so no sperm in the ejaculate, or a very low count, so less than five million per milliliter. And again, the two mainstays are a karyotype and a Y-chromosome microdeletion. Other genetic testing uh, that we use would be cystic fibrosis or CFTR testing uh, in patients who have bilateral absence of the vas deferens and important to test the female partner in that setting. Um, there's likely a large number of idiopathic male infertility cases that have genetic underpinnings uh, and our understanding isn't quite there yet. But this can include other genetic changes such as chromosome translocations or rearrangements or single gene losses or gains. Um, in patients who are azospermic or have really low counts, there's a clear role in doing this testing prior to assisted reproduction. Um, and we know that men who have uh, specifically low counts um, or non-obstructive azospermia are at higher risk for malignancy. That can include testicular prostate and others. And overall, about 15% of the male genome is involved in reproduction, which is not a trivial amount. So talking about specific syndromes, so Klinefelter's, important to remember they can have mosaicism. Uh, it's overall the most common genetic diagnosis in male infertility. And again, they're gonna have <clears throat> hypergonadotropic, so elevated LH, FSH, hypogonadism. Um, many of them may have been initiated on testosterone during adolescence. Um, it's somewhat controversial as to whether that has any negative uh, reproductive implications for them down the road. Uh, most will have azospermia, but about 8% will have sperm in the ejaculate, so important uh, to do a semen analysis. And as I mentioned previously, many of these patients don't have the classic phenotype um, that we hear about in textbooks, so keep that in mind. 
And uh, testicular sperm extraction uh, retrieval rates are high in this patient population. So why chromosome microdeletion testing? Uh, so uh, the fragility of the Y chromosome in particular is what increases the chance of there being microdeletions. And this is a PCR-based assay. Um, it's denoted by uh, AZF, comes from azospermia factor. And the most common that you'll see are AZF, A, B, and C microdeletions, and these show up on the in-service. And again, the indication is a patient who has no sperm in the ejaculate or a very low count, specifically less than 5 million per milliliter. Um, you want to obtain these prior to doing a sperm extraction in a patient, and the reason for that is if they have an AZFA or B microdeletion, they have a really low probability of sperm being identified, and we do not, uh, in general, recommend pursuing microtessy or testicular sperm extraction in those patients. Conversely, patients with an AZFC microdeletion have relatively high rates of success with a testicular sperm extraction. If you uh, find a patient who does have a really low sperm count and you identify an AZFC microdeletion, uh, it's important to know that many of them can progress to actually having no sperm in the ejaculate, so you want to consider uh, freezing sperm in that scenario. So vasal abnormalities, uh, as you all know, you can have uh, bilateral or unilateral absence of vas deferens, and in general, uh, patients who have bilateral, uh, majority of them will have at least one CFTR mutation uh, those who have unilateral, still upwards of a third will have at least one CFTR mutation. Uh, these patients have low ejaculate volume and an acidic pH. Uh, this is a physical exam diagnosis. So uh, in general, patients who had unilateral absence of the VAS uh, will have uh, renal agenesis. So you want to do a renal ultrasound in those patients. If they have bilateral, as I mentioned, uh, that common for them to have a CFTR mutation, uh, but even 11% of those will have a solitary kidney, so you could consider a renal ultrasound in that case. Um, you want to assume if you identify bilateral absence of vas deferens, but your CFTR testing comes back negative, you still assume uh, that the patient uh, has a mutation. Uh, they can be variable based on ethnicity and, and geography, and it's important to always test the partner. Um, these patients can undergo a sperm extraction IVF. Uh, the picture is showing you essentially a uh, patient had an absent vas deferens and oftentimes we'll see um, even a little cystic formation uh, within the caput uh, where the epididymis would be whether that's resulting from the efferent duct or otherwise where you can find sperm or within the testis itself. So varicocele uh, touch on briefly but uh, so common so 15% of all men actually have a varicocele whereas 40% that we see uh, for infertility or an abnormal semen analysis will have one. And 80% of men with secondary infertility uh, will have varicocele. And we take that to mean that varicoceles may have uh, more detriment over time. Secondary infertility being you had one child and you're having difficulty having a second. Uh, again, this is another physical exam diagnosis. So a grade one is when it, uh, it's palpable when the patient valsalvas. A grade two, it means you can feel it even when they do not. And a grade three is visible. Uh, you can see varicoceles on ultrasound, and there are uh, varying criteria for what constitutes the varicocele uh, based on ultrasound. But in general, if you can't feel it, uh, we don't deem it clinically significant um, and therefore uh, would observe it. Uh, the indications for repair would be in an adolescent uh, who had an abnormal semen analysis if you're able to do one, or you sig see significant testicular asymmetry, um, or for pain. So imaging-wise, uh, there are not a lot of absolute indications for imaging and infertility. So if you felt a mass to evaluate for cancer, uh, transrectal ultrasound. So again, if you see uh, greater than 1.5 centimeters of dilation in the sem seminal vesicles, that would indicate ejaculatory duct obstruction. Vasography is not routinely performed anymore. Uh, we do a saline injection at the time of the second reversal or additional passage of a suture to confirm patency and that manual feedback is enough. MRI, highly uncommon, uh, but you can evaluate the prostate and seminal vesicles. Um, and we talked about renal ultrasound uh, with uh, unilateral absence of vas deferens. And uh, people have argued for uh, doing a renal or retroperitoneal ultrasound for patients who have a unilateral right varicocele. There is some debate about that, but in general, uh, most people still do it. So there's a lot that's changed over the years in terms of the uh, clinical evaluation. 
for the infertile male. And we've talked about uh, some of the uh, newest testing and some of the adjunct testing. So we're gonna just uh, touch briefly on non-surgical management. Again, leaving the surgical uh, to Dr. Krostek uh, coming up. So Kalman syndrome, which we talked about uh, treatment-wise, so those patients have low LH and FSH, and essentially what you're doing is replacing those hormones uh, with HCG, which replaces LH and the combinant FSH. In Klinefelter syndrome, we talked about there being high success rates in terms of sperm extraction, and um, they often do have some testosterone exposure. However, this doesn't appear to have negative implications for sperm retrieval later uh, in life. And patients with elevated prolactin, we talked about the indication for pituitary MRI uh, when it's significantly elevated, and I've listed for you there where you have mild elevations where likely no further evaluation is needed. And those patients will ultimately either have uh, dopamine agonist therapy or less common surgery. So non-testosterone-based management of hypogonadism and, and infertility, I'm just gonna focus on the infertility parts. Um, Dr. Brannigan may have touched on some of this, but uh, so in general, uh, when we talk about CIRMs or selective estrogen receptor modulators, Clomid's the most common. Uh, it's been used off-label uh, for low testosterone and male infertility for quite some time, and I've put the dose in there. And uh, what through its modulation of the estrogen receptor, blocking that negative feedback, you get a, uh, a subsequent rise in LH and FSH, so that LH will stimulate testosterone production very reliably, and uh, FSH goes up and in some patients, uh, you'll see a response in terms of sperm production, although not all. Uh, <clears throat> Dr. Krostek, who I mentioned uh, through some work here, showed that Clomid's safe and effective in long-term treatment of low testosterone for men who wish to preserve fertility and a relatively low uh, rate of side effects. Uh, it's been used in infertility, um, both, uh, let's say most commonly in the setting where you have a patient who has hypogonadism plus infertility, appears to be less effective in the setting of just um, empiric treatment uh, to raise sperm production. Uh, Dr. Sharma, who I mentioned previously, has looked into this in terms of predictors of fertility response. Um, and there are indications uh, where you might wanna employ this and in patients who have a low count um, and maybe are, are not able to undergo assisted reproduction or wanna try everything possible, that may be a setting Again, predictors are relatively difficult to identify. Uh, there was a Cochrane review done in 2007 that showed uh, Clomid does reliably improve on endocrine profiles, uh, but uh, still mixed evidence in terms of its efficacy to improve on fertility. Another class of medications are aromatase inhibitors. So these are blocking the conversion of testosterone to estrogen. And again, just dosing for your reference there, although it's a little bit, uh, it's highly variable uh, depending on practitioner. There may be some subsets of populations where this is useful. So we mentioned the importance of the testosterone to estrogen ratio and maximizing that. Uh, that may be a patient with obesity or a Klinefelter syndrome uh, where this, uh, this drug may be useful. However, uh, generally not good in the long term as uh, some of the side effects include bone density loss and LFT elevation are problematic. So there's limited data in terms of its safety in that setting. And when you compare it with Clomid, uh, there doesn't appear to be any uh, superiority in terms of uh, patient symptoms, um, if they're hypogonadal or semen parameters. But as I mentioned, in some select populations where that testosterone to estrogen ratio is low, less than 10 to one uh, may be useful. HCG, so this is essentially replacing LH, which uh, stimulates the lytic cells to produce uh, testosterone. Uh, dosing varies based on indication, but its primary roles are to maintain sperm production when um, it's administered concurrently with testosterone therapy, although not a guarantee. Uh, you'll see us use it when a patient's been on uh, testosterone and has some suppression, and we're trying to essentially reboot the system. And then in the treatment of hypogonadotropic hypogonadism like Holman syndrome that we talked about. So ejaculatory dysfunction, this is a less common cause of uh, infertility, but um, if you do have ejaculatory duct obstruction, those patients are gonna have low ejaculate volume and acidic pH. Uh, they can undergo a transurethral section of the ejaculatory duct. Retrograde ejaculation, again, uncommon cause, uh, but in that setting, we can try to retrieve urine through catheterization in the bladder after alkalinization. 
or we can try to promote antegrade ejaculation by giving them a simple uh, mimetic agent and alkalinizing the urine and using that for assisted reproduction. In the setting of an ejaculation, whether that's from uh, spinal cord injury or otherwise, a couple options there are peripheral vibratory stimulation or electroejaculation. And if those are unsuccessful, then a sperm extraction is possible. But it's important to note that if a patient has an injury at T6 or above, that can result in autonomic dysreflexia. In supplements, I'll suffice it to say that this is a highly controversial area. There's no known best regimen. Um, antioxidants appear to be good for sperm health, uh, but there's no standard of care, uh, no combination that's known to be best. Uh, Cochrane review that was done showed uh, couples undergoing ART may have live birth rates if taking vitamin E and zinc for a multivitamin. Um, current evidence really is inconclusive and highly debate, debated. And just some other things in terms of patient counseling. So in terms of diet, um, healthy diet patterns appear to be better compared to our traditional wet or Western diet. Uh, for patients who have occupational or environmental exposure, it's really counseling regarding, of course, avoidance if possible and includes cessation of smoking. Uh, certainly weight loss and regular exercise can improve uh, fertility, both hormonally and from a sperm quality perspective. Uh, we talked a little bit about advanced paternal age and the negative implications on offspring. So some of that can include neurodevelopmental disorders, musculoskeletal syndromes, retinoblastoma. And then empiric treatment, uh, we talked about Clomid maybe being the most common uh, appears to be most effective if, if there's uh, endocrine abnormalities concurrent, uh, not uh, outside of that setting. And, uh, finally, some assist, assisted reproductive technology information. So in general, what's pursued in this scenario is based off of what's present in a semen analysis. And there are a number of different sperm extraction techniques we can perform uh, to retrieve sperm, whether from the epididymis or testicle. But in general, uh, just as a hallmark in terms of sperm numbers required, so intrauterine insemination generally will say between three to five million modal sperm uh, after that sperm is washed in the andrology lab. Traditional IVF, um, you may need upwards of 75,000 modal sperm. Uh, but ICSI, intracytoplasmic sperm injection, which is performed commonly today, you just need as many sperm as eggs, so that can be as low as 20 uh, or lower. Uh, in some cases. And of course, you all know about ICSI, uh, but performed more and more routinely these days, uh, as we talked about earlier, and really dropped the requirements in terms of sperm production uh, needed for a man to become a biologic father. And just some assisted uh, reproductive technology success rates for you. So you can see uh, with timed uh, intercourse versus intrauterine insemination, whether stimulated or not and then IVF. So uh, there are some scenarios where IVF uh, success rates are much higher. Uh, depends, of course, on the male and female factors that may uh, or may not be involved. So in conclusion, uh, male fertility is multifactorial. So we talked about endocrine uh, issues, abnormal uh, sperm production or quality issues. Of course, there can be obstructive causes. Uh, many of these factors can be treated, uh, whether through medical therapy or surgical therapy. Uh, important for us to keep, a, keep in mind when we're evaluating and treating these patients, they are at risk for other diseases, uh, things like diabetes, heart disease, malignancy we talked about. So it's really a measure of their overall health. So thank you very much for your attention and uh, we're happy to address any questions. Thank you so much, Dr. Smith. That was a great lecture, really uh, guideline-based and um, you know, it's going to be so great for the trainees to go off of your slides and the discussion. Um, looks like Dr. Sharma here has been answering actively um, in the chat here. Um, I just think because we have some time, it'd be nice to go over some of these in person. Um, and then anything else, any additional um, information, we can put it on the website. And Dr. Sharma, feel free to, um, you know, add to the discussion as well. Thank you for moderating. Absolutely. Um, so, so uh, I'll just do the question asking maybe, and then, you know, you two can go back and forth with the answering. Does that sound okay? Sure. Great. Awesome. Um, so there's a question here about uh, what we categorize as dead sperm. Um, do they never attain motility or is there some sort of structural trauma? 
Um, so happy. So when we talk about dead sperm, usually um, the assumption is if you see no motility, um, you know, most people are going to say it was assume it was a dead sperm. Um, you know, with cryptospermia, which is what we're talking about, um, you really have to, if you were going to try to define that further, that's where that vitality testing would come into play. Um, so I think hopefully that answers your question. But in general, what you're to confirm, you know, a live dead um, vitality testing or, or something like that. Or, sorry, go ahead. Sure. So uh, I, I guess to follow up on that question, it was what else can cause necrospermia? I know that necrospermia is common when uh, it can even happen with condom use or it's common with spermicidal use, but are there any uh, inherent abnormalities, whether they be congenital or otherwise, that can be an underlying cause of necrospermia? Yeah, I mean, I think you named some of the, the most that you would, most common that you would see. So. In general, uh, when you talk about this, we're talking about patients who often have very low counts uh, in the sperm. Some can have obstructive causes, uh, certainly like a partial obstruction that can result in that. Um, but in general, you're gonna talk about a patient who you know, it has severe oligospermia and it may be upwards of you know, having uh, even just a handful of sperm. Um, so there aren't any necessarily telltale signs, but in general, what you what you, it's gonna have prompted you to do is obviously your physical exam, that endocrine evaluation and genetic testing as well. Um, you know, certainly like AZFC microdeletions, like I mentioned, some of those patients that have severely low counts will progress to no sperm. And that's just kind of uh, the changes that happen within the testis over time. There was a question on testis biopsy, and there are a lot of nuanced scenarios where that may be helpful, but do you have any general uh, recommendations or guidelines as to when to consider that? Sure. Yeah, so you'll see um, if, you, if you delve into some of the esoteric uh, fertility world uh, stuff, you'll see that our providers that will do uh, even what's called testis mapping procedures uh, in the office. So uh, some have shown that instead of us going into the operating room to open the testis and do a micro uh, which is obviously invasive, that, uh, that they can go through and kind of systematically map out the testis uh, with a needle and look at different um, sections of it that way um, and, and sh show reasonable success rates. I wouldn't say that that's really supplanted what we do in terms of micro but if you're talking about just an um, actual testis biopsy really don't do diagnostic testis biopsies anymore um, the reason for that is that if you did identify sperm even you know the presumption would be it's a patient that you might find rare sperm uh, you want to have the ability to cryopreserve that specimen and so generally it's done at the time of micro testing where you're going to freeze it um, you know one scenario where uh, it was it could be done or considered is let's say you had a patient who wants a vasectomy reversal and that patient uh, turns out in your interview tells you they've been on testosterone long term and so uh, what would happen in that scenario if you don't take them off testosterone and treat them with something else is you might go to the operating room you look at the vasal fluid and you don't see sperm there and you might do an epididymal vasostomy uh, that would potentially you know, affect their patency rate afterwards. So instead, what you would do is you could, you know, re-stimulate them with something like Clomid or HCG. And then in theory, uh, some people in that setting might do a testis biopsy to confirm return of sperm production prior to the second reversal. That's not required by any stretch. You could certainly just go straight to the uh, vasectomy reversal. But really, we're talking about pretty rare scenarios. I think Importantly to know that our, our thinking's really changed and that there are very few indications to do a diagnostic testicular biopsy. Great. There were uh, a couple of overlapping questions on kind of how genetic testing, um, whether it be indicated based off of the uh, hormonal evaluation overlaps with kind of practicality. So for example, the Y chromosome microdeletion testing, if the patient or the couple is not going to be pursuing ICSI, then what is the cl clinical utility of the Y chromosome microdeletions? Yeah. 
So there's certainly been some uh, debate about this. So some people just due to the incidence in terms of when we det actually detect the Y chromosome microdeletion um, really goes up kind of as you get in the range of maybe one to two million sperm per milliliter. So some have argued maybe we should be dropping that threshold to begin with. Um, primarily the indication would be, uh, you know, in this setting of ART, like you mentioned, Devon, where, uh, you know, if, if the couple has a child, has a male child that the Y chromosome will be passed on, um, or, you know, obviously if you're gonna go in and, and do that sperm extraction attempt, um, you know, those are the two kind of mainstays. Outside of that setting, um, you know, there's, it's hard to argue to a couple uh, that they have to do that. I really haven't seen that the reproductive endocrinologists or IVF folks will require it. Uh, patients in general are gonna have pretty extensive genetic screening prior to IVF at baseline. And uh, the Y chromosome generally is, is a lower, um, uh, lower indication in terms of doing that. And then an overlapping question was also about the CFTR testing. When you palpate an abnormality of the vas deferens, uh, what is the role of CFTR testing, especially considering that if it comes back negative, you're still considering it as a presumptive positive? Yeah, so in part, um, it's related to the fact, obviously, where if the couple is going to go through a sister reproduction, um, that the implications of them potentially having a child with CF, which is why you'll see it's uh, sometimes an in-service question. You know, the answer is to test the partner. Um, you know, from an overall health perspective, we talked about the indications for renal ultrasound in those patients. Um, notably, you can do uh, most of the CFTR testing you'll see. It de depends on your institution, uh, but you might have some assays that are test 107 mutations are the most common. But uh, you can even get whole genome sequencing. Um, the other thing, like we talked about, is uh, there are variations in terms of ethnicity and geography. So um, really, it's, it's important for couple counseling, um, and it particularly implicated in ART setting. And then uh, for the next question, can you comment a little bit on uh, your experience or the data with uh, TESI or microTESI for patients with primary testicular failure? I mean, in general, I think almost any setting that you look at uh, testicular sperm extraction, microTESI has really um, shown significant advantages, both over um, in terms of identifying sperm, uh, but then also um, in what the patient ends up with afterwards in terms of the amount of testicular tissue uh, you're removing and any sort of implications down the road in terms of hypogonadism. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is uh, depending on where you are, uh, you may or may not have an embryologist in the operating room with you. Um, uh, we, we do here and we're, and we're fortunate in that regard, but when you give a lab just a chunk of testicular tissue to look for sperm. Uh, in general, what's found is that they have lower chances of identifying sperm. Uh, whereas if you're giving them smaller samples and maybe there's more samples given, it's just less of, when you're looking for a needle in a haystack, if you give a, a bigger haystack, it's harder to find that, that one or two that may be there. And then this may overlap some with Dr. Krostek's talk coming up, but um, what is your take on uh, hormonal optimization or uh, stimulation for those patients prior to microtessy? Yeah, so this is still uh, debated by some practitioners, and I think it, it really depends on the patient population you're talking about. Um, you know, there are some populations where, irrespective, you have um, pretty reasonable retrieval rates. So you know, Klinefelter syndrome being one of those, uh, even despite their testosterone exposures uh, in some cases, or patient with an AZFC microdeletion. Um, you know, I think in terms of if you just have a patient who has non-obstructive azospermia without, um, you know, without an established etiology for it, if they're hypogonadal, I think the other thing that comes up is whether or not to delay to treat them and optimize. But 
you know, I think a lot of the studies really shown kind of mixed results. So it's really um, more provider practice based than not. I've tended to try to optimize men, uh, just especially if you're doing a fresh retrieval. So uh, the difference there being is that if you're doing a fresh retrieval, uh, if you don't find sperm, then the couple's left with either using donor sperm or freezing their eggs. Um, whereas a fresh cycle or a frozen cycle, excuse me, is, you know, you may try to freeze sperm. Um, although in this setting, usually there's so few sperm found that they may not survive a freeze and thaw. Um, but the couple hasn't gone through a stimulation. They haven't paid, you know, thousands upon thousands of dollars yet uh, for the IVF portion. So there are a lot of different things that go into play there, but again, the data is really mixed in terms of if optimization helps. All right, very good. Looks like we're at the top of the hour here. Um, just wanted to thank you, Dr. Smith and Dr. Sharma for joining us this morning. A really informative discussion, and I think we actually got to a fair number of the Q&A, thanks to Dr. Sharma's moderating. Um, so whatever is remaining, we'll get up on the website. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.